And open your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. We've looked at Stephen's speech now, I think the last four Sundays, and we will finish it today with Stephen's final verdict. And I have dared, as you can see, to call this sermon the Christian view of Judaism, not a Christian view of Judaism, but Luke gives us Stephen's verdict, and obviously Luke agrees with it, and therefore this is the New Testament's verdict. And so it behooves us to listen. This last verse, Stephen's climax, verse 53, You who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Apply this verdict to our hearts this morning. Don't let us have hearts that are hard, rebellious, and vain. Give us the humility to submit to your word, to receive the law, and then to keep it by the power of your Spirit. Father, we ask that you would open our hearts to understand the Scriptures this morning. Help me to speak boldly, and accurately, exactly what is written in your word, not to share opinions or to entertain with anecdotes, but to proclaim the word of the living God. Give us the grace to hear, open our hearts, let the good seed of your word fall in and bear fruit a hundredfold. We pray in the name of Jesus, your Son, our Lord. Amen. Stephen's verdict is a harsh one. There's no doubt about it. And his verdict is fully justified because he announces, you received the law by the direction of angels and didn't keep it, and they immediately go on to prove him correct by killing him. Stephen is an early disciple of Jesus who has been arguing with his fellow Jews in the synagogue of the freedmen here in Acts chapter 7. He is given the opportunity to make his defense before the Jewish council, the highest governing body in Judaism. And Luke records that speech, which climaxes with this definition of Judaism, the religion that received the law of God, and then this verdict on Judaism, the religion that failed to keep the law of God. And I want to show us this morning, not only that this is true of the Jewish church, but that this is also the path of least resistance for the Christian church. And that in fact, in important respects, this verdict applies more to us than to Stephen's original audience. Right? Especially if we think it doesn't. So we'll get there. Let's talk first about the historical historical context, or this rather this definition. Judaism, uh, at base, is defined as the religion that received God's law. The core identity of Judaism is summed up in what we, the passage we read, Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me, right on through to, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. This is the law of God. This is God's perfect Code for behavior. 
Some of us remember the bad old days when laws were published in book format. Doubtless you've been in your lawyer's office at one time or another and seen the volumes of the United States Code squatting on the shelf and thought, who on earth is so unfortunate as to have to know what's in these books? This is horrible. God boiled his law down to a single volume and within that volume to ten simple commandments that cover the entire field of human endeavor. If you have the Ten Commandments, you have everything you need to live a perfect life. It's all there. From your relationship with God, to your relationship with your neighbor, to your relationship with yourself, the Ten Commandments covers the field because it's perfect. It's divine. God gave it. What is the basic format of a law? It's an imperative. Do this. Don't do that. Thou shalt. Thou shalt not. And Judaism then, Stephen says, is primarily, fundamentally, the religion that received the law of God. That got the perfect instruction manual on how to live in this world. Stephen mentions the law coming from angels. He might be thinking of the angel of the Lord, whom he's mentioned before. Certainly he's saying this law is supernatural. You can get any human legislature together that you want, and you could ask them to come up with ten principles that cover the entire field of human endeavor. And they will fail miserably. All you have to do is compare a human law code with the Ten Commandments, to agree with Stephen that, yes, these ten are supernatural. They don't come from the human mind. They come from the mind of God. So Stephen says that about the Jewish church, and then he adds that they have failed to keep it. You were told what to do, and you didn't do it. Right? And they're just about to violate the Sixth Commandment by murdering Stephen. This whole process kicked off by violating the ninth commandment and hiring false witnesses to lie about him. They're violating the first commandment because Stephen is arguing for the right way to worship God, or rather, really the third commandment, second commandment, talk about that. Stephen's arguing for the right way to worship God, and they're resisting him and saying, no, we don't want to worship God that way. Your way of worshiping God is wrong. And so official Judaism, as Stephen just mentioned in the previous verse, they killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. So betrayal, you have no loyalty in your hearts. Murder, you have no respect for human life in your hearts. You violated the law of God. God told you not to cheat, not to lie, not to betray, not to murder, and you did Anyway, you have not kept the law of God. Legalism demands that you conform or else. Jesus and Stephen met with the or else. But of course, Luke has already given us hope for Jewish sinners. People who have heard the law of God and broken the law of God. Back in chapter 3, verse 26... Peter's second sermon at the temple to you first, God having raised up his servant Jesus, 
sent him to bless you in turning every one of you from your iniquities. If you're a lawbreaker, there is hope for you. There's hope for Jewish sinners, as Luke has already highlighted in his book. That's the basics, the Christian view of Judaism. Judaism is fundamentally law-oriented, and like the rest of humankind, Jewish people break the law of God. But the Messiah came for lawbreakers. So, where do we go with this? What does this have to do with us? Well, here's what it has to do with us. If we read this and say, oh, those wicked Jews, we have completely and totally missed the point. Luke didn't record this whole history to say, ancient history, different people, not your story. Right? All of this is here because it is our story. If you are a believer, you are part of this same family, our fathers in the wilderness, as Stephen constantly refers to them. Stephen recited our history because this definition fits us. In fact, it fits us better. We've received more of God's law. We have the New Testament too. And in fact, of course, if you ask somebody who's not a Christian what their impression of Christianity is, they will tell you that it seems to be some kind of system for being a good person. The moral aspect stands out primarily to the world as the core of the Christian faith. And oftentimes, the moral aspect is what stands out primarily to those in the church, too. You can ask many a professing Christian and say, what is your faith about? And they will tell you, well, it's about being a good person. Do this, not that. The legal, moral aspect, receiving the law of God. And so that means that we are just as much on the hook to keep God's law as the Jewish church ever was. In fact, we are more on the hook. So Stephen's verdict applies to us receiving the law by the direction of angels and unfortunately all you have to do is look at your own memory to ask the question to answer the question of whether the church perfectly keeps the law of God. In general are you a law keeper? I hope so. But it all depends, of course, on what you mean by law keeper. I say here, I have a point here, the church has failed to keep God's law. What do I mean? Well, basic Christian teaching tells us that it is not the Jews who are responsible for the death of Jesus. It is the Christians. In other words, the biggest crime, the one that Stephen pins on his accusers, of whom now you have now become the betrayers and murderers, that's a one-sided statement, and the rest of the New Testament fills that in, and even, dare I say, corrects it. 
What do I mean? Well, simply this. It was not the injustice of official Judaism that succeeded in doing in God's Messiah. No hand lighter than the Father's could have nailed him to the cross. The Father condemned him to death. That's why Jesus died. No agency of justice less ultimate than God's own could have tried, convicted, and killed him. What do I mean? Well, simply this. The Sanhedrin, Caiaphas, Pilate, at most, are instrumental causes of the death of Christ. But the efficient cause, the cause that actually did it, is your sin and mine. Jesus did not die because of the sin of non-Christians. The reason Jesus died is because of my sin and your sin. Christians killed the Messiah. He would never have had to die without our sin. This is basic Christian teaching. Now, being an instrumental cause is bad. But being, it's not the same thing as being the efficient cause. The cause that actually performed the work. So what's the difference? Well, if I and I did. I found on the side of the road a few months ago a 22-inch, half-inch drive Craftsman breaker bar pretty handy. Take my tires right off. But if I rotate my tires with this freebie breaker bar, who rotated the tires? The tool or me? Right, this, this wrench is nothing but an instrumental cause. Obviously, there's no way that I or anybody in this room can walk up to a Suburban and take the Lug nuts off with our teeth. Not going to happen. And yet the efficient cause is the one that's ultimately responsible. The instrumental cause is there. It plays a role. Without it, sure. Tires won't be rotated. But the instrumental cause is not the thing that did it. And so what is Stephen saying? You are the instrumental cause. You participated in this. You are willing instruments of the death of Christ. But his message to us is that if you're a sinner and God has forgiven your sins, the only way he could do that is by punishing somebody else for them. Your sin deserves death. Jesus died that death. God spent over a thousand years teaching his people this lesson by instituting animal sacrifices. So that just viscerally you would associate in your mind the sight of blood puddled on the ground and that smell of burning animal flesh. Say, that should be me. This bull, this lamb, this dove is being charred on the altar today because 
I deserve that for my sin. And Jesus died in your place. He did not die in Pilate's place. He did not die in Caiaphas' place. He did not die in Annas' place. He did not die in the Sanhedrin's place. He didn't die because they sinned. He died because you sinned. So what is Stephen saying? Yes, Jewish church, you failed. You received the law and didn't keep it. The Christian church, we've received the law and our entire existence is predicated on us not having kept the law. Because we sinned and therefore Jesus died and therefore we gather to worship Him week after week after week. And that's why when people stop believing in sin, right, when you take the first domino out of that chain, then pretty quickly people stop believing in Jesus and then they stop believing in going to church. And we've all seen it happen among our friends, among our family members, certainly among our culture at large. As church attendance drops off, as people stop believing that anybody needed to die for their sin. Why would they need to die for my sin? I'm a good person. Right? The times I've tried to do street evangelism and talk to people about Jesus, what's the uniform response? I'm good. Oh, well, in that case, I don't need to tell you about Jesus. You're good. Good people don't need this message. Only bad people need the message that Jesus saves. Jesus did not die because Caiaphas and Pilate sinned. He died because you sinned. And the Lord has laid on him, the Father has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the New Testament's teaching. And this, really, brothers and sisters, is what sets the church apart from every other human club or organization. There is no other group that exists solely to come together every week and be told how rotten they are and what they've done wrong. If you don't like church, well, that explains it. The message that we hear, the message that is in this book is not you're a wonderful person who deserves the best. The message is, God had the best, God had a perfect son, and your sin killed him. Go live with that on your conscience for the rest of your life. That's the message of the Bible. Yes, it's on your conscience. At the same time, you know you're forgiven. As Stephen knows, as he says in a few verses, I see the heavens open, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, Jesus getting up to welcome him into heaven. You're a rotten sinner, but somebody else took the penalty for that sin. That's the Christian message. So if you've sinned today, if I've sinned today, and we don't have to say if. We can say you've sinned today, I've sinned today. There is hope for you. The message of legalism, of a religion that is strictly and solely law-based, is do better, be better. And if you don't, oh well. 
That's all we've got is do better, be better. But Jesus offers a different message than do better, be better. His message is, I'm the sin offering. I'm the burnt offering. I took the penalty for your sin. There's healing and forgiveness in me. You no longer have to walk around with the guilt of everything you've done wrong. You no longer have to identify as the thief, the liar, the felon, the adulterer, the person with a rocky relationship with your mom. That can all be washed away. All handed over, lock, stock, and barrel to somebody else who will suffer the penalty, who has suffered the penalty for it. So take heart, right? Lift up your heads, not to look down on the Jews, but to look up at your Savior. That's what Stephen does. He gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And his last words were words of forgiveness. Lord, do not charge them with this sin. Verse 60, how do you get there? You have to be forgiven before you can forgive. If the final authority in your life, your God, is holding your sins against you, then you imitate Him and you hold everyone else's sins against them. But if your God has forgiven you, you can forgive. You can be Stephen and say, God, I don't hold it against them. Please don't hold it against them. Jesus knows that your sin nailed him to the cross and he forgives you anyway and he loves you anyway. He, you had the law delivered to you by angels and didn't keep it. All of us did. But there is hope for people like us. We're sinners. We're forgiven. We have Jesus delivered to us by his Spirit. Standing to welcome us into heaven. So, which message right, do we want to embrace? Do better, be better. That's it. Legalism. Or, Jesus was perfect. Jesus forgives. And in Him, you're forgiven and freed to do right because you no longer have to carry around that giant burden of all your unforgiven sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, show us the enormity of our sin. Show us that you delivered us by your Son. That you were the efficient cause of his death and that the goal was to lay the iniquity of our sin on Him. Father, we pray that You would help us this morning to realize the Gospel. To believe it. Show us the glory of Your Son who willingly died in our place. Show us Your heart of mercy. 
As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is your mercy toward those who fear you, that as far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed our transgressions from us. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.